Hello, and welcome to That's So Ravenloft, a podcast dedicated to 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons horror and dark fantasy gaming in the dread domains of Ravenloft and beyond. And in this episode, we are going to go far, far beyond the world of Ravenloft to the most dreadful domain of all, Earth. My name is Megan. You can find me on Twitter at MissMeganJ. My pronouns are she, her. And my lovely co-host is Deanna. Deanna, say, say hello to the nice people. Hello, nice people. I'm a lovely co-host. My name is Deanna. My pronouns are she, they, and you can find me on Twitter being unhinged at Deanna Writes Inc. I-N-K. And today we have a super special guest, one of my favorite people, literally one of my favorite people on the entire planet. Her name is Allison Bloom, and she is a, sorry, I already messed, I already forgot what you wrote for your description. It was, it was super vague. Um, I'm a, um, an illustrator and graphic designer in the games industry. That's it. I was getting, I was getting game designer and graphic, graphic designer mixed up. Um, I just make the games look pretty. Allie is a expert on Vampire the Masquerade. I've never met anybody who knows anything about any topic better than Allie knows Vampire the Masquerade. (laughs) Um, so she, we invited her on and she kindly accepted because we were, Starting to get into Vampire the Masquerade on our last episode, but we wanted to give it its own episode, spend some time talking about it. We also wanted someone who knew what they were talking about. Uh, that wasn't us. So we had to take a break and go find someone. Yeah, I mean, I, I am playing currently in Allie's Vampire the Masquerade campaign, but I don't really know what I'm doing. So um, I figured it was, I mean, I just make a bunch of clown jokes. So I figured it was better to have Allie on and actually somebody who knows what they're talking about. But before we get into it, I want to do two quick, quick shout outs. Um, one is for a book that is currently on the DMs Guild called Tasselhoff's Pouches of Everything. It is a fifth edition Dragonlance campaign setting that was produced by the Dragonlance Nexus. Some of you may or may not know that I also run the Dragonlance Canticle podcast, which was created by the Dragonlance Nexus. So if you're at all interested in Dragonlance, this is a book you need to get. It's fantastic. It's better than all the others that are on the DMs Guild, even though I haven't read them. I just know that ours is better. Um, and also, I want to do a quick shout out for myself that I will be running Dragonlance Shadows of the Dragon Queen on startplaying.games starting in January. And there will be a link in the show notes if you are interested in participating. But more so than just my own plugs, I also want to shout out a project that Allie is working on. Uh, tell us the name of the project again. Um, it's called To Honor Grandfather. It's um a dice game set in the sci-fi universe of the Traveler role-playing game. We'll be kickstarting it at the end of January. Yeah, so if you're interested in board games, dice games, science fiction games, Traveler specifically, the Kickstarter is, is going to start, like she said, at the end of January, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to remind everybody at the end of January and post a link once the Kickstarter is live. So don't worry if you don't remember it after this episode is done, as you will get reminded frequently. And loudly. And getting into our topic for the day, we are discussing uh, Vampire the Masquerade. And Vampire the Masquerade was originally created in 1991 by White Wolf Publishing. The author is named Mark Rain Hagen. I'm not sure if it's Rain or Vine, but we'll say Mark Rain Hagen. Uh, The second edition was released in 1992, one year later. A revised edition was released in 1998. Uh, in 2004, it was released, kind of rebranded as Vampire the Requiem. In uh, 2011, there was a 20th anniversary edition released. And then finally, bringing us up to the present, 5th edition was released in 2018. 
which was designed by uh, Kenneth Height as the lead designer and published by Modifius Entertainment. Um, so that is the quick and dirty history of the publishing of Vampire the Masquerade all the way from 1991 until 2018. So it's been going fairly strong this entire time. I, f I feel like Vampire exists in a, or came to exist in a very specific context. And I am going to to vaguely describe that as the vampire renaissance of the late the late 80s slash early 90s. Um, we've talked a bit about vampires in pop culture, but I really want to zero in on this specific stretch of time, kind of like from 1990, or sorry, like 1985 until 1990, not 1998 or so. This is a portion where I will not at all be helpful <laughs> because I was only alive for four of those years. <laughs> So vampires kind of got a resurgence, I'm going to say. I'm going to, I don't know if this is a hot take or not, but I'm going to say in 1996, interview with, sorry, 1996, wow, I'm way off, 1976, Anne Rice publishes Interview with the Vampire, uh, and then follows it up with Vampire Lestat in 1985. In the 80s, vampire movies have a resurgence in movies like Fright Night from 1985, The Lost Boys, and Near Dark, which both came out in 1987. So then in 1991, the game is released. And then following it up with the 1990s, we have movies like Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1992, Buffy the Vampire Slayer in 1992, Interview with the Vampire the Movie in 1994, and then From Dusk Till Dawn in 1996. And then in 1998, we have Blade. And in 2003, we have Underworld. And I wanted to put Blade and Underworld kind of in their own separate category because I feel like these are, these are movies that were influenced by the game or at least influenced by the culture that the game created or that the game was a part of. Would you, would you agree with that, Ali, with regards to those two movies? Um, I would. And I think, um, at the time, White Wolf would have agreed as well, since they did sue the production company of Underworld for essentially lifting their intellectual property. You know, I remember that now that you say it. In fact, I think when I first saw trailers for the movie, I assumed that it was directly inspired by Vampire. Mm -hmm. I was like, Vampires versus Werewolves? Oh, it must be. Vampire the Masquerade and Werewolf the Apocalypse as a yeah. movie. Yeah. There was a lot of the kind of the the kind of intersectarian war, the the interspecies war. Um obviously the aesthetics of the sort of gothic punk world um was directly influenced, if not, you know, an obvious uh ripoff. Uh, is that too strong of a word? I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't think ripoff is too strong a word. Maybe uh maybe not maybe it's too strong in the context of Blade, but in the context of Underworld, I think it's I think it's pretty appropriate. I mean, they could not have made a vampires versus werewolves movie in 2003 and remain ignorant of how similar it was to vampire and werewolf. Well, they were probably just basing all that off of uh, Dracula versus the Wolfman, right? They, they hadn't seen any other vampire material since then. Yeah. I, I mean, the movie feels very much like Dracula versus the Wolfman. Um, with hints of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein as well. Right. How did the lawsuit turn out? Do you know? Um, I, I believe it was uh, settled out of court, you know, quietly sort of thing. Oh, I hate oh, when they do that. Yeah, I like all the details. That's right. so, so boring. I want fingers. I want finger pointing. I want someone to blame. I, I want, want the tea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
So you already kind of touched on it a little bit. What would you describe as the feel of Vampire the Masquerade? Um, well, Vampire the Masquerade and the world of darkness at large has always sort of described itself in the books as quote-unquote gothic punk. Um, and I think that's a pretty fair wrap-up, a pretty fair representation of the aesthetic and the themes. Um, it's at its heart this very neo-noir sort of world. Um, you know, everyone's a little more corrupt than they normally would be in our world. The shadows are a little longer, um, and it's probably raining all the time. And everybody oh. wears black leather and trench coats, and everybody's got eyeliner. And well, it was the '90s. You had to have the trench coat to hide your uh, katana. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. That's why I wore one. <laughs> there is no boot that's got a sole smaller than four inches. <laughs> yeah, when I think of vampire, I think of like, I think of like underground goth clubs and like you know the cd the cd side of urban living and you know neon lights reflecting in the rain on the pavement that's like i mean i was i have never in my entire life been cool enough to go to an underground goth club but that's in my mind that i imagine such things existing and then that's where i imagine vampire sort of taking place in that kind of world I think that's a fair take. Um, certainly, you know, at the height of the game's popularity as well, there were plenty of LARPing groups that did take place in those environments. So it sort of fed back into itself even. Do you know what a LARP would have been like in that, like, do you go into the club and, like, as your vampire character and just, like, hang out as your character? Is that how that works? Essentially, yeah. Um, you know, you roll in with maybe a pack of cards or, um, you know, in, in place of dice rolling, you would use cards or maybe hand signals. But for the most part, it's all in character and it's um, all sort of social interactions already in vampires. So it's not like you're getting into magic duels or anything like you would in a different game. That's the kind of LARPing I could get down with. You just go to a, you go somewhere and you hang out in character. You pretend that your wine is blood and you call it a night. Yeah, that actually, that sounds kind of fun. I, I've never LARPed in my entire life, but I think if... If I were going to LARP, that's the kind of LARP I would want to LARP. Um, what would you say, uh, you've sort of already hit upon this, but what would what would you say sets Vampire apart from more classic vampire stories? I'm thinking like not only Dracula, but I'm thinking of like the Hammer horror mm -hmm. movies of like the, the 50s and 60s and kind of like the, uh, and I guess they went on into the 70s too. With yeah, like Dracula, kind of what, 1972 AD was a big one, right? Yeah, like the exploitation movies of the 70s. So what, what sets vampire apart from more classic kind of vampires? I think, I think you touched on that a little, actually, with the shift in vampire media throughout the 80s, um, largely brought on by Anne Rice's novels. Um, you know, when we think about, like, the classic folkloric vampire that we know in pop culture, it's almost all this mix match of Eastern European folklore. And up until you know, the late 70s, the early 80s, um, they were almost universally portrayed as these monsters, these others. Um, you know, they could be plague bearers, they could be sexual predators, um, anything of that nature, but they were never protagonists necessarily. And then suddenly we got this influx of gentler vampires to, to an extent that were grappling with their morality, their inhumanity. They were tired and bored of immortality um, and looking for fun. And what's more fun than going down to the local punk club? They, they blend in 
with society. I guess that that's maybe one of the big distinctions is that vampires are no longer, you know, so monstrous that they can't really fit in or that they're or that they're just pure, purely predatory. You know, they have their own personalities and their own sort of desires that go beyond just drinking blood. Yeah, they're I mean, they're ultimately kind of sexy. Um, and as social predators, being sexy helps. Of course, you see a lot of that even with older inferences of Dracula and like um, Camilla and stuff like that, but certainly not to the extent that you get with the Vampire Chronicles and World of Darkness. How do we feel about Vampire, how it tapped into the zeitgeist of the 1990s? And could it have been created at any other time? And what what about that time period in which it was birthed made it so explosively popular? I think it was pretty specific to the zeitgeist of the early to mid 90s. Um, we had a lot of kind of paranoia about the end of the world in particular leading up to the new millennium, um, which you see plastered throughout all of the world of darkness, not just vampire. Um, vampire has, you know, Gehenna, but, um, you know, the other games in the, in the world of darkness have their own, um, equivalents. Werewolf has the apocalypse, uh, mm -hmm. you know, mage has their ascension, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think that in and of itself, that idea that it was popular to believe the end was coming, whether it be from a Mayan calendar or, you know, the return of some religious messiah or Y2K or whatnot, um, that coupled with this innate distrust in the government that we saw with things like, you know, the X-Files. It was it was a, a pretty particular sort of mood that we had in the 90s that I think lent itself very well to overlaying this this dark, monstrous world on top of our our own. Um, OK, on that note, let's get into the the deep lore of the setting. So. Vampire is nothing if not jam packed with lore. So tell us, Allie, what are vampires? Where do vampires come from? It's a, it's a kind of a, a shallow topic, right? What is a vampire? But what makes the vampires, the kindred, as they are called in Vampire the Masquerade, what makes the, these vampires different from different from other vampires? Like, um, how how are they made? How are they embraced? What are their what kind of powers and weaknesses do they have? And you know, every vamp every iteration of vampires has its own kind of rules and it's their own kind of physiology and what what is it for Vampire the Masquerade? Um, sure. I guess we could start just at the uh the the, the initial point of the life cycle, the unlife cycle. Um, you know, vampire kindred, as you said, um, in Vampire the Masquerade are created when they are drained to the point of death by another vampire. Um, and then they are fed some of that vampire's blood. Um, and that's pretty you know, that's that's not all that unheard of um, across other media. Um, again, you know, Anne Rice sort of popularized that um, that embrace, quote unquote, uh, style. Um, so then you have, you know, the newly made vampire and their sire, as they call it. Their daddy. Um, they're, they're their mommy or daddy. <laughs> <laughs> they're them be. Um, beyond that, um, there's some subtle differences on how they stack up against you know, more commonplace vampires, um, especially in regards of what they are capable of doing and incapable of doing. Um, their weaknesses differ pretty greatly. Uh, with traditional vampires, you would think, you know, you could stop them with 
crosses or holy water, you know, sometimes even silver. Um, but in Vampire the Masquerade, none of those things are, are true. Um, you know, silver doesn't do really anything the vampires. Crosses and uh, other religious symbols and holy water really have no effect on them either, unless the person wheeling them has some sort of extraordinary faith. Um, but the average person, you know, doesn't really have that. Um, as how far as they're... Say, how about sunlight and stakes to the heart? Sunlight will absolutely kill a vampire, um, as will fire. A stake to the heart will not kill a vampire in Vampire the Masquerade, however. Um, it merely paralyzes them, uh, leaving them, you know, frozen in time to see and hear everything that's going on around them until the stake is removed. Oh, that sounds Adam awful. Sandler. <laughs> Adam Sandler lied to me in Hotel Transylvania. There. <laughs> I was like, when you said that, I was trying to think of like, did he ever get a stake through the heart in Billy Madison? I don't remember that part. Let's, I want to talk about like the powers that they have. So I know that some of them have more, some of them have kind of like traditional vampire powers, but I think just by the virtue of the fact that this is a game and, you know, the, the players need a diversity of options for what their character can do. Tell us some of the nifty things that vampires can do. We don't need to, you don't need to, uh, provide an exhaustive list, but just some interesting powers. Tell us about, you know, you could tell us about um, Sister Judith's shadow powers, because those are really cool. Okay, so um, I guess it's worth pointing out that all vampires have, their powers are called disciplines. Um, each discipline um, will essentially give you access to a different themed set of powers. Um, usually they're themed after some sort of, you know, archetype or trope of vampirism. Um, in this case, with the aforementioned Sister Judith, um, she focuses a lot on the discipline called Oblivion. Um, and Oblivion is a new discipline to the fifth edition of Vampire the Masquerade. Um, it's sort of an amalgamation of two older disciplines, um, necromancy and obtenebration. Um, so Sister Judith, she's from Clan La Sombra. They traditionally have obtenebration powers, which gives them oblivion in the new edition, um, which are these shadow powers. You know, she can control shadows. Um, that means that she can blend into them. She can step into one shadow and teleport out of another shadow. She can create living shadows, you know, where these creepy little 2D silhouettes uh, crawl and stretch across the walls to attack people. It's, um, it's, it's a pretty useful set of disciplines. Um, I don't know that it's maybe one of the more mm, typical powers that you'd think of, you know, vampires having, though, outside of maybe, you know, Count Orlock or something. Yeah, like, uh, no, I think the shadow powers works. Like, remember the part in, uh, in Dracula, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, when, like, Dracula's shadow is, like, strangling Jonathan Harker? Mm. I think it, I think it, you know, it, it's at least represented in, in the culture. And my character, Thea, Thea Nolan, aka Stitches the Mime, she has like, uh, mental powers, like mental, mental influence powers. Like she can make people forget things. What is that power called? Uh, obfuscate? Um, so it's dominate. Dominate. That's in, it. Uh, fifth edition. But since she's a Malkavian, she, um, really uses a lot of the dominate, obfuscate amalgams, um, to kind of have access to what used to be dementation, which was, the Malkavian's sort of signature power. Yeah, so a lot of vampires and sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, let's let's 
play a fun, quick game. All right, Megan, we've done this for a while. What vampire the masquerade powers uh, would you give to me as a person? If we were making me as a person a vampire the masquerade character, what discipline do you think I would have? Um, isn't there like a gangrel power that lets you control rats? Uh, animalism. Yeah, I would give that to you, except ferrets instead of rats. <laughs> For context, I uh, have two very mischievous ferrets. <laughs> Are there any other kind of ferrets? Not fair. <laughs> no. <laughs> so that I think that's what I would apply to you. So we talked sort of about what vampires are on an individual level. What are vampire, what is vampire society like within the game? And I want to start, I'll ask you some more specific questions since I know this is a super broad topic. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What is the masquerade as indicated in the title, Vampire the Masquerade? Um, VTM. In VTM. (laughs) Um, so the masquerade is this tradition that vampires of certain um, organizations have where they keep their identity, their existence secret from um, the mortal world, from the the kind, as they call them. Um, that means, you know, hiding their feeding spots, um, you know, not leaving witnesses, whatever that amounts to, um, not leaving trails of bodies. Um, not being caught on camera, that kind of thing. And that actually creates a pretty big plot point in the newest edition where um, the one sect, the Camarilla, has you know gone so far as to outlaw um, having smartphones if you're a vampire so that you, know, you can't be tracked or videographed or you know recorded or anything. I would just hurl myself into the sunshine if they suddenly told me I couldn't have a smartphone. Oh, and I was just thinking that's very difficult to blend in in this day and age. If you don't have a smartphone, if you whip out a flip phone, people are going to have questions. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. If somebody is like, if so, if you're not walking around or sitting on the subway or whatever with your phone out, I think that makes you more suspicious. There's an argument to be made for that, I suppose. Um, you could get a prop phone. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. Like one of those little kid phones that's full of candy. Yeah, it's not unheard of for them to use, like, you know, other things as props to blend in in the social scenarios, like, you know, having drinks or cigarettes or something like that. You know, even though they can't really partake of it, it it, it works as a prop to help camouflage them. Oh, it's all part of the masquerade. So there's and- no actual, there's no actual masks. No. Oh, well. There could be. I, Not I until can. you get pretty high up into the Camarilla. Um, certain positions only show up masked. Um, so that no one knows their identity once you get into like Justicars and Archons and stuff. But that's sort of global, worldwide conspiracy level stuff. We had a player who could change her face in a, in our Vienna game. That's kind uh-huh. of a... Yeah, Felicia kind of a was a Zemitzi, so she had a, a flesh sculpting. So, she, I mean, she could change herself to look like anything, essentially. Remember, she, she, she used her power to like graft pieces of Beethoven's skull onto my character's skull. She did. <laughs> to stop the ringing, the voices. The voices in my head. It's one of those things where it's like, do I want to know more? Or <laughs> is it better that I just hear the phrase, they grafted Beethoven's skull onto my skull? Well, not the whole skull, just pieces. That that would be a bit extreme. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it, it, made, it, it made sense. 
Uh, let's go into the the 13 clans. You don't need to, you don't need to list every single one. I mean, you can if you want to, but um, what is just the idea of the 13 clans? I feel like there should be a song for them, the, you know, like a, some kind of pneumatic device. I'm thinking like, do you remember on uh, Animaniacs when... That's exactly uh, what I was yes. thinking. Oh my gosh. Saying that song about all the states. Yeah, I feel like that. <laughs> Speaking of the 90s. So what what is this? Explain this concept of the 13 clans to us. Um, sure. So I guess it's probably worth pointing out, first of all, that you know, there are actually more than 13 clans. Um, it's just that within Kindred Society, they only really recognize 13 major clans. Oh um, in you current heard it here nights. first, folks. <laughs> 13 clans, a lie. Right. <laughs> the truth come out. Big vampire, vampire doesn't want you to know. Um, okay, so there's the 13 major clans that are recognized, um, as well as other as other clans. With the um, AKC of vampires. These are the ones we recognize. <laughs> yeah. You need to have, if you don't have the right color coat, you don't, uh, you don't get to be a Malkavian. It's like you're not really insane enough to be a Malkavian. Or the clans are kind of like how vampire society is divided, um, as well as it, it, they're almost like, well, I guess they're called, they, I guess they are called tribes in werewolf. In werewolf, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, yeah. that's sort of how I think of them. They're like a giant extended family of all leading back to one, to one kind of grandparent. Um, allegedly one grandparent. Um, you know, the, the main lore of the game that's kind of pushed by various blood cults throughout, throughout the lore is that, you know, all vampires descend from the biblical Cain. Um, who was cursed after slaying his brother Abel, cursed directly by God, branded with, you know, the mark to, and cursed to live forever and walk in the darkness and all that stuff, which, you know, explains away a lot of the vampire powers and uh, weaknesses. So a lot of the clans believe that they are kind of genealogically connected to Cain um, through generations and generations of sires and uh, children. You know, with, with each of these family branches, I suppose, um, developing their own powers, their own disciplines, and refining those along the way, um, as well as developing their own sort of intercultures that are independent from the other clans. And so there's like, I, I was, you know, brushing up on my lore for this, for this chat, and I thought it was really cool, the idea of like these great ancestor vampires who have been around, you know, for thousands of years i guess some of them are some of them are dead like some of the original ones are dead or some of them quote, still, unquote are, dead <laughs> are some of them still around um so like, it's kind of a big point of contention whether or not i mean so the older you get the scarier these vampires get so you go you know fledglings and neonates and elders and ancillas and methuselah and you know there are a fair amount of these methuselah around but then after that you get into things like the antediluvians which were you know, the second and third generation removed from Cain, you know, really the progenitors of the clans themselves. And a lot of them may or may not have been wiped away by the biblical flood of Noah, hence the, the name, the antediluvian name. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of debate within the lore on whether or not they're still around, um, whether or not certain ones have been, you know, killed or diabolized at certain points. Um, it, it's very intentionally nebulous, I think, 
because one of the big points of the eventual end game of Gehenna is that the antediluvians return and you know eat all their children. Oh, I was gonna. Oh. Ask, that sounds awesome. I was gonna ask you about. I was gonna ask you about Gehenna a bit later, but since you mentioned it, why don't, I mean, is is there more to it than that? Is that just sort of the? I mean, I guess it's sort of this mythical like apocalypse slash Ragnarok thing. Maybe it's not too specifically defined, but yeah, they all. I mean, is that what everybody's afraid of in Vampire? The possibility that these antediluvians could show back up and just kill everyone? Uh, more or less. Um, you know, it's it's sort of a, a background problem, though. You know, in in the same way that there are some people in the real world that are scared that the world is going to end tomorrow. Um, it's something that these blood cults and these, these nodist churches and stuff within Vampire preach. Um, though how much it's actually believed, you know, by the, the people down the streets is sort of it, it varies Gehenna has a lot of different alleged signs of its coming that are explored at least back in the original 90s supplements um, are explored as the meta plot itself is sort of moved forward supplement after supplement you, know, you have like the red star appearing you have um the thin bloods becoming more prominent you have um, vampires kind of losing potency older vampires losing their the potency of their blood and losing their powers um, and you eventually you do have one of the antediluvians rise up, um, the Ravnos antediluvian. Um, they're eventually seemingly destroyed, um, but it leaves the entire Ravnos clan almost extinct in the process. Um, it seems like a lot of these ideas that you're talking about, like antediluvians and Gehenna, it it all seems very much like if you are a game master running the game, these are sort of elements that you can incorporate if you want if you want to do like the grand epic plot or you can do like the more, you know, down to earth city level, street level kind of storytelling. And yeah, just have that yeah, I think that's there. Um, a lot of that, you know, big meta plot that was being pushed forward through the, you know, supplement after supplement month after month throughout the nineties were, you know, very much just background stuff for the big named characters to go take care of in the, the published novels and stuff. Mm. Um, I don't think a lot of players tend to deal with that stuff. Though when they did end the World of Darkness, um, I want to say in the early 2000s, um, you know, Vampire did get a Gehenna book that gave you several different potential scenarios to play through um, and, you know, several different potential ways it could have happened. Okay, so I don't know exactly how to describe the Camarilla, the Sabbat, and the Anarchs. Uh, please describe them for me. I, I mean, I need to know. I probably should have asked you this a long time ago since I have now been playing in your game for a few months. Yeah, especially since last season, uh, last session, rather, you all decided to, you know, declare war against the camera. <laughs> yeah, I was like, um, I don't, I don't exactly understand. I, who I would point out because of some thin bloods and the, the fear of Gehenna. So that I picked up on that. I, I rem you said that about the thin bloods and Gehenna, that part I remembered. But so it's, it's Megan's all always out around. there. <laughs> Megan's always out there declaring war. <laughs> So we are, um, so we have declared war against the Camarilla, and we are fighting on the side of the Anarchs, right? Yep. Yeah. So, see, I, know. I, I, I think I, there I was sort of know what I'm talking um, about. a few comments about maybe uh, contacting one of your Sabbat operatives that you know, though. So, I, you know, I don't know where that's going to go. So, so the Camarilla is are they're kind of like the the enforcers of the masquerade. And are they like what passes for government within vampire society? Yeah, they're the like the, 
the central government, uh, the quote-unquote ivory tower where, you know, a lot of the bougie vampires hang out and hoard their wealth and enforce these traditions that have been handed down through, you know, feudal societies. So it's like the real world, except they're vampires. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's a bunch of Republicans. <laughs> it's the 1%. <laughs> uh, and then are the, the Anarchs, are they, are they uh, like just ideologically opposed to the Camarilla? Are they like in open violence with them? Does it vary? It, it varies and it varies from kind of addition to addition. Um, the Anarchs are, you know, as individual as any vampire can be. Um, they don't really have much of a unifying political message. Some are true believers of the Anarch movement of, you know, this like vampire co-op or maybe even um, these ideas of rebuilding Carthage and living in peace with humans. Whereas, you know, some Anarchs um, maybe just don't like that they aren't the ones with the power and they hate the Camarilla on that basis. Um, fifth edition that. has kind of pushed them to be their own sect in a lot of ways. Whereas before they were sort of like a dissenting, um, you know, pool of, of Camarilla vampires. But, you know, we're still courted under that umbrella and counted under those traditions. And what is this like about? I, I just going to say, I like the idea of this individual anarchic vampire movement where one one wants, you know, peace with humanity and to live amongst them. Another one is just like, I just want a cell phone. I really <laughs> love to have a smartphone. I'm going to overthrow the government for it. Yeah, I think now that it makes a bit more sense within within our group, especially for my character, I don't think Thea is really the, you know, she's like a street performer. She's not really, you know, the bougie live in the ivory tower type. So I think it's probably for the best that we're aligned with the Anarchs. Well, you don't really have to worry about cell phones in ours either since you know, we're in 1986. But I could have a giant, I could have a giant Zach Morris phone or like a, a car phone I plug yep. in. <laughs> a beeper. <laughs> Camarilla have outlawed beepers. Those bastards. Um, and what about the Sabbat? What's the Sabbat? Um, the Sabbat actually began as the first Anarch revolt. Um, you know, within the context of the lore, um, the first Anarch revolt was this sort of big throwing off of the chains of the elders, um, where, you know, a few clans figured out a way to break blood bonds, um, and kind of ritualized that and formed their own sect to fight back against their oppressors. Um, it went on you know, for a considerable amount of time before, you know, one way or another, the hostilities were eventually patted down. Um, and those within that group that kind of, you know, went along with the Camarilla's peace offering became what we think of as the Anarchs in the game now. Those that did not like that peace offering went off and became even more radical and became what we think of as the Sabbat now. And the Sabbat in modern nights is this very this this very sort of like medieval death cult where they, you know, form these ritualized blood bonds with each other so that they can't be blood bound and held as slaves to other vampires. They go out actively, you know, killing and eating and diablerizing vampires that are older than them, um, waging open war against Camarilla cities because they have no real respect or concept of the masquerade. Uh, with their ultimate goal being to hunt down and kill all these antediluvians before they can kill them in Gehenna. They don't care about being discovered by humanity. They're nope. just 
Awesome. There's, there's, so there's some things where they have what's called Silence of the Blood, which is sort of their version of the Masquerade. But for the most part, they're pretty open about their, their own, you know, brutality and embracing their inhumanity and their, their vampire supremacy, uh, you know, to some extent. I mean, I would find any person who can just like eat me bar none. I, yeah, they're superior to me. Absolutely. <laughs> you know what? You win. She feels the same way about sharks. I, no, that's fair. <laughs> I was wondering how you were going to shoehorn the ocean into this one. But yes, sharks are superior. Uh, I, I can't tell if the Sabat are the good guys or the bad guys. I don't think there are any good guys. <laughs> oh, okay. Just different different philosophies of being bad. Yeah. It's just okay. like real life. There are no good guys or bad guys. There's only the 1% and the rest of us. <laughs> So, uh, okay, I think we've gone every- over everything in the Vampire Society I wanted to go over. Um, no, I know- haven't. I have one question. Oh, yeah, yeah. Please go. Ask. There's a note here that says, what is Diablery? And you've said Diablerize a couple of times. And I am, <laughs> dear listeners, I know nothing about Vampire the Masquerade. So I'm enthralled by this conversation. What is Diablery? Yeah, I feel like we should have, like, read through a lexicon at the beginning of this or something. <laughs> Um, for so, me specifically <laughs> for everyone there's a lot of really kind of odd ornate uh antiquated language that i think they just purposely throw in the game to feel fancy frankly like but, like kine and antediluvian yes. and childer yeah <laughs> um diablery however is when a vampire drains another vampire not just to the point of killing them but past that where they uh, essentially consume their essence, their soul, or what they call their heart's blood. Um, they gain a little bit of that vampire's powers, their you know memories, their experience in the process. And they also get stronger. They go, they move down a generation, right? Yep, yep. You get well, assuming the person you ate was uh, a lower generation than you. So if you're a, if you're a if you're like a a thirteenth generation vampire. Like one of the the little one of the little young ones, and you so diablerize. You know, you're, you're, you're so if if uh, Deanna, let's say Deanna's a thirteenth generation vampire, and Allie is a tenth generation vampire. So you've been a vampire for like a couple hundred years, um, and then Deanna eats you, and and eats your soul. She then becomes a twelfth level, a twelfth generation vampire. Yeah. So it's good to be lower. It's not like levels in D&D where you go up. It's actually better to go lower. Yeah, you're getting closer and closer to King, essentially. Yeah, Yeah, it's just like golf. Like, if you you drink all of Tiger Woods' blood, (laughs) you become really good at golf. (laughs) But it's it's not so great to be a lower generation, though, right? Because then you're stronger, but you're less human too. Well, and your your curse gets stronger as well. So yeah. you, know, you start taking more damage from suns and fire. You you start having a harder time keeping a rain on your beast. Um, and eventually, once you get so high, you can't even slake your hunger on animals. Eventually, you can't slake your hunger on humans even, and you have to eat other vampires. You just mentioned a word that triggered by my oh beast you mentioned the beast tell us tell us about the beast (laughs) sure um the beast is sort of the core philosophical question of the game you know uh, a beast i am lest a beast i become um every vampire has this little urge inside of them this little voice telling them to 
you know, give in, to be a monster, to, you know, kill that human, drain them, to kick that puppy, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> and no. a, a Diablerize lot of vampires, that puppy. Get right. its cuteness. <laughs> Diablerize that soul. puppy. Yep, it's actually a gangrel <laughs> in disguise. Um, but now, as, as a lot of, like, younger vampires find ways to sort of, you know, stay connected um, and anchored to their humanity. Um, you know, in, in fifth edition, we use touchstones. You know, these are people that you knew from your mortal life that sort of represent some aspect of humanity um, that you either see as idealistic or maybe it reminds you of what not to be. Is the beast like a separate entity that exists within you, or is it just more like a metaphor for sort of the predatory aspect of a vampire? Or is um, it both? Yeah, it's never really made quite clear. Do you like purge the beast out of you somehow, or is it just it's um, always going to be a part of you? Yeah, there's um, certainly the idea is floated in the game that you could. Um, you know, overcome your beast, you could reach some kind of equilibrium with your beast by um, going down the path of Golconda and reaching Golconda, which is this sort of vampire enlightenment. Um, actually, one of the clan's progenitors, the Salubri, um, their, their creator, their antediluvian Salat, is, you know, that's kind of their whole thing, is they found Golconda um, and found purged themselves. Zen. Yeah. <laughs> vampire Zen. Oh, that sounds vampire nice. Zen. And so the, I know they described this in the earliest settings. I don't know if they still use these terms, but they described it as like vampire as personal, personal horror as opposed to, you know, cosmic horror or gothic horror. It's sort of more about like what's within you. Like mm -hmm. the fear is, is, is not necessarily, I mean, you're not, the fear is not so much that you are in danger from outside sources, but that you yourself are so inherently dangerous that you are a danger to everyone around you, even the people you don't want to be a danger to, and you're also a danger to yourself. So since we're, since we're, so I know that the opposite of beast is humanity and humanity is a game mechanic. So let's, let's talk about the sort of mechanics of the game. How does, how does vampire work in terms of its, um, it's, so I know it uses something called the storytelling system. Um, so tell us about the storytelling system and then tell us sort of how, how character creation works. I do fully expect at the end of this to be able to just jump into any vampire the Masquerade ah! game. <laughs> I did bring up a, a character sheet so I can follow along. What, what additions the character sheet will we'll make uh, sure we get it? It is a 5e okay. character sheet that I'm looking at. Yeah, but, um, the storyteller system, I guess, you know, at its heart is um, it's a D10 based dice pool system. You know, so you're rolling big handfuls of, of D10s based on your dots in attributes and skills and disciplines. Um, you know, there's not really a lot of modifiers in the way that you'd think of in, you know, D&D &D or Pathfinder or whatnot. Uh, thankfully, a lot, you know, a lot of the dice pool system just allows you to look at what you have in something, you know, smush two attributes, two skills together and roll that many dice um, with, you know, some low outliers like the hunger system. Yeah, so there's nine attributes. Uh, they're divided into physical, social, and mental. Mm -hmm. um, so for physical, we have strength, dexterity, stamina. Those are pretty straightforward. Social, uh, charisma, manipulation, and composure. 
negative composure for me. <laughs> and then for mental is intelligence, wits, and resolve. And I saw this written somewhere as like strength, charisma, and intelligence are kind of like your, how you like forcing something upon the world, whether it's physical or mental. Mm -hmm. um, dexterity, manipulation, and wits, kind of like the fine tuning of how you change the world. And then stamina, composure, and resolve is kind of how you resist the outside world's influence on you. Yeah. So I like that. I think that's very elegant. I think it's more elegant than what, what they do in D&D. And those attributes are a little different now. Um, the ones you listed in V5, you know, they, they, they've changed and streamlined them a little from previous versions, but it's still basically the same. Uh, and then you have your skills. So for Thea, for example, I have, uh, I have two dots in larceny, pickpocketing, one in melee. Of course you do. <laughs> three in stealth. Uh, got some insight, uh, performance. Persuasion, streetwise, subterfuge, awareness, and spiritualism. Oh, I didn't even know I had that. Um, so if I'm wanting to like uh, pick somebody's pocket, I have two dots in larceny. What would you tell me to roll? Um, so picking someone's pocket would probably be like dexterity, larceny, um, and you'd be, get to use your specialty on that as well. So I have, I have uh, three points of dexterity. I have two points in larceny, and I have a specialty in pickpocketing. Mm -hmm. So how many dice do I roll? So you'd be rolling six, because your specialty would essentially give you one additional die. Okay, so I roll six d10s. How do I know if I succeed or not? Well, you would, I guess you would also have to figure out what your hunger is to replace the appropriate dice with hunger dice before oh, you Oh yes, rolled. tell us about hunger dice. Um, So in V5, rather than having just sort of hunger check boxes that work like mana pools like you did in previous versions um you have hunger dice um your hunger can go from one to five uh with well i guess rather zero to five um with zero being really good and five being really bad really really hungry um for every dot you have in hunger you replace that many dice in your dice pool with you know a different colored dice you know whether it be red or whatever just to indicate that they're hunger dice and then on your roll, um, those hunger dice may affect the outcome, whether it be your beast welling up and, you know, really pushing you to, to succeed, or maybe you kind of flubbing it and, and failing and, you know, succumbing to like some kind of vampire temptation or compulsion. That is where we get my two favorite concepts in all of Vampire the Masquerade, which is bestial failures and messy criticals. I just love the sound of that. I just love the sound of messy critical. That's so they're, evocative. They're, they're both so evocative. <laughs> I wish every game had messy criticals. I would love it if I was like playing D and D, and my 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 players are like, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to backstab the guard, uh, and then they get a critical, and I'm like, okay, you stab all the way through his chest and rip his heart <laughs> out and squirts blood all over your face. My players would like. Nobody would want to get a critical if that's what happened. <laughs> <Got> a critical. <laughs> is that like how your hunger dice affect things? Is that they can cause these messy criticals or bestial failures? Yep. Yeah. So a messy critical would be um, a, a normal critical. So a critical in in V five is when you have um, at least two tens. Um, two tens essentially double that success. But if one of those tens is on a hunger dice, it makes it messy instead, which you know just means that your beast, you know. Uh, comes to the forefront, 
and makes that crit happen. Um, whether that's, you know, tearing up a bookshelf or, you know, tearing off someone's throat. They don't need that. <laughs> Not anymore. So if I get a messy critical in, uh, what is, what is a messy critical look like in my pickpocketing? Uh, well, in your pickpocketing, <laughs> I guess it would, it would depend a little. Um, it could be something as easy as, you know, maybe you, uh, knock the person out in the process or you injure them somehow in the process. You know, it, it suddenly makes what should have been sort of a, a subtle move a lot less subtle. I'm imagining bestial failure is like they notice that I'm trying to pick their pockets, so I bite their fingers off. Like they're, they try to grab the wallet from me or something, and I bite their fingers off. Yeah, bestial failure nice. should usually, in some way, you know, add some kind of wrinkle or complication to the scene. Um, so it could be, you know, you biting someone. Um, you know, maybe you get close enough to pick their pocket, but you see their vein twitch in their neck or something. You bite into them instead of pickpocketing them. Um, there's also the, um, the I'm always clan... making that mistake. <laughs> there, there are also the clan compulsions that um, the storyteller can assign you based on these roles as well. So like the uh, the bestial fa failures oftentimes can, you know, just kind of um, bring up some of these compulsions that are inherent to your clan. So like the the Malkavians, your um, your sort of uh, whatever madness it is that you chose would kind of maybe well up at that point. So I remember, I think my madness is that if I, my madness is that I, I unlearn how to talk. Right? You lose I your voice, talk. yeah. Yeah. Because you're a mime, and why not? <laughs> so if I had a, a bestial failure, I might, that might trigger my clan compulsion and I might lose my ability to talk. Yep. And the compulsions usually last for like a scene or, or until, you know, something is satisfied to, to end them. Okay, cool. And then. Uh, uh, derangement. That's what I was trying to say. Not madness. <laughs> derangements. Derangement. So the more the hungrier you are, the more hunger dice you roll, the higher your chance of a bestial failure or critical success. Oh, messy critical. Messy critical. Yeah. Um, okay. So you got health, willpower. Those are, I think those are fairly straightforward. I know you can use willpower to like re-roll if you need to. Yep. You can burn one willpower to re-roll up to three non-hunger dice. And then every, every uh, character has disciplines as well. What are, what are disciplines? Um, well, we touched on the disciplines a little earlier. They're essentially your, you know, your powers that you have, your, your inherent vampire powers that, you know, are to some extent unique to each clan. Each clan has, you know, three disciplines that are considered in clan for them. Um, there's some overlap with, you know, various clans, but no, no specific configuration is 100% the same. Uh, so like I have dominate for my discipline. Um, and so, or I, and so I have cloud memory and mesmerize. So I juggle, I juggle my juggling balls so well that people are mesmerized and it gives me influence over them. That's just is me that... watching regular juggling. <laughs> uh, chronicle tenants we went over. So that's like your group comes up with sort of their, their mottos or their guidelines. Yeah. It's sort um, of like the ethical base floor of your whole chronicle. It's, um, it's, you know, part morality system and part safety tool. Uh, and then I have convictions. So this is like my, my character's personal convictions. So for two of mine, I have the show must go on and never reveal your secrets. Touchstones. This is, you mentioned this earlier. Touchstones is like people that keep you in, in contact with your humanity. Um, and each other... of your touchstones should be tied to one of those, uh, convictions specifically. Uh, they are, yes. 
And I mean, there's a lot more to it than that, but I think that's kind of like, that's the, the main, the, those are the main mechanics, right? Pretty much, yeah. And the, the way the humanity and touchstone works like that's, that's rather the, the tenants and the convictions, the touchstones and humanity. Um, you know, that's pretty specific to V5 even. Like in previous versions of the game, your humanity more or less just worked. Everyone had humanity. Um, and everyone had the same sort of hierarchy of sins that they couldn't do. And it was very much this sort of Western Abrahamic religious sort of thing. You know, don't kill, don't steal, stuff like that. Um, if you were a Sabbat vampire, you had access to like roads and paths that could be weirder, more alien things. But um, it, it's nice in V5 that, you know, they let you personalize it, um, you know, to recreate any of those paths and roads, even if you want. I know I keep bringing it back to D&D because that's what I know the best, but D&D has like the I ideals, bonds, personality traits, flaws that in theory are supposed to sort of influence, you know, your character, sort of sort of supposed to determine your character, but there's no benefit and there's no, there's no benefit to following those and there's no penalty to not following them. They don't factor in in any way mechanically. Uh, ultimately, the idea is, you know, kill kill the monster, sneak past the guard, open the treasure chest, you know? Right. Um, but vampire really sort of integrates integrates these beliefs and convictions into yeah, the I game. Mean, you could even argue that it's, you know, the central mechanic for the whole game is humanity. This idea that you're fighting against your beast to stay as close to a uh, human as you can, lest you know, you, you get lost to the beast. I mean, once you run out of your humanity track, your character becomes unplayable. You become this raving white um, that's just going around eating whatever it can with, you know, no sense, no morality, no higher thought, nothing. Okay, so that's what, that's what lent my lay in store for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, I think Cat only has two humanity at this point, so oh, you know, my you, you'll all get to see what happens sooner or later. I think I have I have seven I have seven boxes filled on my sheet. Yep, seven's the default you start with, unless you you know you choose like a specific predator type or something. Yeah, so I'm I'm doing pretty good. Um, let's talk about and we're we're starting to edge our toes into this territory. So let me uh let let's jump over to. What sets what set Vampire apart from other tabletop games in terms of design, uh, in terms of design philosophy and playstyle, like when it was launched, and then what sets it apart now? And I really wanted to talk about this because we we had sort of touched upon it when we were chatting before we actually started recording, but that it it seems to me like the the narrative focus and the character development focus within Vampire must have been very novel in 1991. Uh, and that it has become very much a part of gaming ever since then. You know, it, it's it's easy to look at vampire nowadays and, you know, think that it's sort of unremarkable in a lot of ways. Um, especially, you know, if you have any familiarity with, you know, indie RPGs who, you know, take these character abstractions and really push forward with characterization and plot control and, you know, cooperative uh, GM player narratives. But, you know, in, in the early 90s, it really wasn't the case then. You know, you had D&D was obviously big even back then, and there was some other outliers, but it was really the first game that truly tried to put, you know, story and character first and not just, you know, getting loot. Yeah, I mean, we've been, I've been in like 
eight, nine, ten sessions with you now. I don't think I've ever gotten into combat. No, I think you uh, you all, <laughs> even as a whole coterie, maybe roll the dice, you know, two or three times a session or something. So I've never I've never attacked anything with either of my two characters. My my first character that we played in the in the Vienna campaign didn't even carry her weapon around. That's that's how little attacking I ever did. Um, although she did start a riot, so that I mean that's not yeah, the the op the Vienna Opera riots of eighteen eighty two. I mean, think there's a Wikipedia article. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I was so proud of that. So yeah, I mean that—that's kind of how I feel now. Like this, these story elements are story and character have become much more important in games, especially like indie games, like you mentioned. I think a lot of a lot of um, powered by the apocalypse games have these bonds between characters that are really that have a mechanical benefit. Like if you break a bond, or if you, you know, if you break a bond, something bad happens to you. If you strengthen a bond, you get experience. So there's a real benefit to playing your character. Um, in these games, more so than there is in in Dungeons and Dragons, I would say even in Call of Cthulhu. Call of Cthulhu doesn't really have any of these character mechanics um, for the most part. Um, and I want to lastly talk about, uh, well, not lastly, but next to lastly, talk about a little bit about the world of darkness. Um, we don't have to go into too much detail because we'll probably be touching on these systems in later episodes. But what is what's the world of darkness as a concept, and what is it as a a franchise as a brand. Oh my gosh, that's a that's a pretty broad topic just in and of itself. Please tell me every single book that's ever been published for World of Darkness and every uh... single book. Well, by publication date, please. <laughs> well, and that's not even going to include like um, the New World of Darkness, which is you know now rebranded as Chronicles of Darkness, right? So... Oh yes, we need it in very specific detail the distinction between all of them. No, just like what are some of the other so Vampire is sort of the linchpin of this world of darkness setting, which is which is Earth. This uh, world of darkness is, is our Earth, but a bit different. A cooler. Cooler Earth. Uh, and Scarier. <laughs> and it has monsters in it, of course. But the, the, the games are all related. So if you're playing, you know, a vampire campaign set in New York and you're playing a werewolf campaign set in Los Angeles... In theory, this, this is the same world. These things are happening. You know, it's all just a one shared world. Yeah, and that's certainly the idea. Um, you know, in, in practice, that may not actually work very well um, as the games, you know, are drastically different power levels and have drastically different themes and mechanics, you know, bolted onto the storyteller system. Um, so while, you know, you and your fellow vampires may like fight a werewolf or something, you know, you're not really going to be playing a, a mixed group where someone's a vampire, someone's a werewolf, someone's a, a mage, you know, that really doesn't work very well. But in theory, it's a, it's all a shared world. It's like and, my, a werewolf character could meet uh, a vampire character from a different campaign or from a different setting or sure. a different yeah. lore book. Yep. Yeah. And, the, and, you know, the werewolves, the, the lupines, you know, as the, the kindred tend to call them, um, you know, are pretty well known uh, within that context. You know, they're the, the great adversary, the great enemy. They, you know, they can, a werewolf can tear through a whole pack of, well, rather a whole coterie of <laughs> vampires usually. Um, so, you know, it's usually something that's avoided. Um, thankfully, werewolves don't much like being in the city. So, you know, you don't come across them all that often as a vampire. Um, well, on the right. other hand, though, when you're we have playing a vampire, as a, We have a werewolf friend in our group, don't we? Friend, maybe a, uh, a strong word to use. 
you uh you know of a werewolf yeah <laughs> a werewolf exists and you know them that's basically a friend but like the uh on the other side if you are playing a werewolf in werewolf the apocalypse um you know you're not really playing a lupine then as the vampires um understand it you're you're playing a guru and you're not just this big furry killing machine anymore you're this warrior of gaia who's you know fighting to save the world and you know is essentially some eco-terrorist tell us so you mentioned hunter the reckoning so hunter the reckoning is like you're a monster hunter right yeah that's like lame the, you're the winchester brothers <laughs> it, it is it is maybe kind of <laughs> lame actually <laughs> sorry i'm all about like yeah let me be a werewolf yeah let me be a vampire let yeah. me be something crazy. Like, oh, you just want me to hunt them? I'd rather make friends. Is it I, like... th I think it's not unfair to assume that it was, you know, maybe one of the less popular of the uh, the games in the series. Um, it kind of came out late in the World of Darkness as well. The, the whole year of the Hunter. The Hunters came about as the end of the world, essentially. As all these other splats, you know, reached their pinnacle. Um, the hunters were activated, the imbued, as they were called. Um, what about Mage the Ascension? Is that I feel like that's kind of the fourth one of the. Uh, yeah, of the Mage world is of darkness. probably like one of the of the big three pillars, I would say, of World of Darkness. You have Vampire, Werewolf, and Mage. Um, even though I think Mummy was actually the technically the second game to get released, even before Werewolf. Um, Mummy, the shuffling. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it had just kind of a generic quote unquote world of darkness splat that allowed you to play as mummies that then eventually years and years later got um re was rewritten and reorganized into the more appropriate standalone mummy the resurrection mm -hmm. but um yeah i mean mage is the other big one where you are you know you're playing mortals but mortals who can you know change reality at will um the way that mage goes about magic is pretty open-ended it's it's you know it's pretty wild really it's actually pretty difficult to play because of it too um where every character is coming up with their own paradigm of how they think reality exists and as such are figuring out ways to circumnavigate the paradox that happens you know when they change reality and at, at the crux of it's this idea where you know these traditions these kind of old style uh, mages and sorcerers and whatnot are fighting this new paradigm, the, the technocracy, who are using science um, to get around paradox by pretending all their magic are science. You know, they're like, well, sure, we can kill someone with a suborbital laser platform, and that's science. No one blinks an eye. Whereas these old style mages, you know, are having a hard time figuring out how to throw fireballs in the streets because no one believes that anymore. I mean, that should be a moral quandary anyway. You shouldn't be throwing fireballs in the streets. Uh, and then there's, so we don't need to go into in, in too deep, but I know there's, let, let's just list off some of the other ones in case people are interested in Googling them. Yeah, you have like Wraith, Demon, uh, Orpheus. Orpheus, Prometheus, Prometheans. So Prometheans is Chronicles of Darkness. Oh, okay. um, so when they, you know, actually brought about the apocalypse and brought about Gehenna and stuff, they they destroyed the world of darkness and then a couple years later um started the quote-unquote new world of darkness which is now called chronicles of darkness and that included um a bunch of games that were sort of thematically similar but were you know had different lore had different mechanics and stuff and that was you know prometheus that was 
Vampire the Requiem, um, Werewolf the Forsaken, Mage the Awakening, things like that. Um, and what 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 was the other World of Darkness ones? You said Wraith. That's the one where you play as like ghosts, right? Yep. Wraith the Oblivion. You play as uh, various ghosts exploring the Shadowlands, trying not to you know get in the scuffles with specters. <laughs> um, you know, instead of fighting your beast in that, you're fighting your shadow, where other players get to whisper in your ears all the terrible things you do and the terrible type of person you are, um, and try to drag you down into oblivion, which is, you know, entropy. It's, you know, annihilation. That's uh, a game I, that's going to require a lot of trust between you and your table, mates. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I do to Deanna. It is. And then, so Faith, is there is there another one that I'm missing? Did you mention Demon? Yep, Demon, Demon. the Fallen was... um. I guess actually Orpheus was the very last one that got released, but Demon got released, you know, towards the end of the world, the, the world of darkness as well. <laughs> towards um, the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a big meta plot point. The, um, you know, there were cracks that happened after this big maelstrom in the Shadowlands that allowed these, these actual demons, these fallen angels to escape their prison in the abyss. And essentially they like, fill in the voids in people's souls. Like, you know, they find people like right on the brink of like committing suicide and they take over their bodies like on at, at the second of them killing themselves and stuff. And they sort of merge their memories with these people's memories. And that's who you play. Hey, uh, Deanna, mm-hmm. do, do you Megan? see, do you see why I wanted Allie to come on for this episode? Because it would have taken either of us like a year to learn everything that she just is just knows off the top oh, of yeah. her head. <laughs> I, but... I spent all of the nineties as a super huge dork. So, you know, <laughs> Oh, well, not me. I was cool during the 90s. Uh, so I don't know what that was like. I was I was busy doing sports and yep, uh, skateboarding and, you know, stuff, things that wearing did in the 90s. I, know. <laughs> yep. I spent most of the 90s uh, as a baby. <laughs> they should have a I'm imagine, now I'm imagining a World of Darkness game called like Skateboarder. Yeah, Skate, Skateboarder, the kick flipping. So I think. Oh, last thing. Let's just tell us. Tell us about the camp. I mean, I know because I'm in it, but uh, tell us about the campaign that you're running right now. Oh, um, sure. So I am, I th- we're going on our third year um, come February. Um, it's actually probably the longest chronicle I've ever run. Um, but it is, we call it Party Monsters. Um, it is set in 1986, New York City. Um, it's very much this sort of, you know, new wave vampire ideology you know where we're we're taking ideas of uh near dark and the lost boys and a lot of the hunger and smushing it into all the the sort of accelerating apocalyptic ideas of the mid 80s you know reaganomics the the aids crisis the we're using the rising moral majority and the satanic panic in place of vampire hunters um right now i think we're on season five our quote-unquote season five. So we're at a point where um, a bunch of thin bloods have flooded into the city from Philadelphia. We're not sure what happened in Philadelphia yet, but it's causing uh, quite a big stir within the court of New York um, where, you know, these poachers are coming in. They're, you know, eating up all the humans. They're causing turf wars on everyone's domain. And the Camarilla is about to activate their scourge to crack down on it. And um, it's where your player coterie has decided to sort of side with the Anarchs and fight back and protect the Thinbloods, it, it would seem. Yeah, we kind of, in our last session, that was kind of the choice we had to make. Like, what, are we going to 
align with the Camarilla? Or are we going to oppose the Camarilla and their decision to persecute the Thin Bloods? Defend your right to own a beaver. <laughs> That's what it really came down to. I've I've spent the the uh the following weeks just writing down all kinds of little plot points of how I can screw you all over on your decision now. So yeah, I need to pick your brain sometime about how you plan out your campaigns because you're so much more in depth than I could ever be. So I'm gonna I'm gonna bug you about that sometime in the in the near future. It's a really messy looking one note document. <laughs> I want to see it. Well, I guess I can't see you it. You cannot but... see it. <laughs> <laughs> show me one. Show me. You can show me one from the older campaign. <laughs> um, so thank you so much, Allie, for coming on and yes, talking to thank us. Thank you so much. You, thank, your, you, thank you for having me. Your knowledge mystifies and awes beguiles. me. Beguiles me. And yeah, I, I just, I'm... So grateful that you're willing to take the time and explain all this to our listeners. And now you just have to play all the video games, read all the clan <laughs> novels, and watch the old Aaron Spelling television show. <laughs> I remember when that was on TV. Kindred the Embraced. Yep. So you're awesome. And you're uh, awesome. You're a fantastic. Thank you. For thank, you are a fantastic uh, storyteller um, and a fantastic human being. And, and a oh, great knowledge base. I don't know if I'd go that far. Human being. <laughs> you're a great human being or a hu- you're a human being at all either of which is acceptable here uh lastly i'll just i'll just shout out one more time that um ali is working on a uh a kickstarter for a traveler based game called to honor grandfather is that it that is it and uh we will be shouting it out once the kickstarter is live so keep listening and please uh Please back her because she's awesome yeah. and we want to support you, her. You can follow me on social media too to, you know, stay up to date. Um, I'm on Twitter at Allison Repose. I'm on Mastodon as Allison Chains. Or, you know, you can just go to my main website at allison.bloom.info and find everything. And I'll have links. I'll have links in the show notes for everything. You would so better. You click on. I will. Jeez. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I will. Well, we will. Deanna and I. We'll see you all next time. We'll see you all next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.